0: Political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan
1: Sally. Welcome. It is the Dr. Pepper of political podcasting here, representing neither Coke nor Pepsi and largely consumed in Florida. Now, it is September. It is back-to-school season, and that means it's time for all of us to start fighting about what's going on in America's public schools again. Masks, vaccines, and, of course, what we're teaching our children. And at the end of the last school year, the subject of critical race theory became a flashpoint, with many parents concerned their kids were being indoctrinated with woke ideology, And other parents concerned the subject of racism was again going to be sidelined by people uncomfortable talking about it. So this month, we're kicking off a series on the subject to determine what makes it so controversial and what some of the problems are around how we teach about race and racism in America. And to kick things off, I thought it would be a good idea if we all figured out what critical race theory actually is. Novel concept. So I invited Gene Beeman, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of California in Santa Barbara and a noted expert on the subject to take us to class. And in this conversation, we get a clear understanding of what CRT is, why it elicits such a strong reaction from people, and how countries with much different histories than the United States have surprisingly similar reactions when discussing racism. And in speaking with Gene, it became clear to me how the way we teach about the uglier parts of American history can actually help us find a path towards creating a more just society. I will share that at the end. Until then, listen to The Smart Woman. So I invite you here to talk about uh, critical race theory. It's a subject that uh, I think a lot of people are debating about. I don't know how many people actually know what it is. And so what I'm hoping is you can provide me and the listener with kind of a baseline understanding and then also help us sift through some common criticisms, some common concerns about it. Um, so I guess to really start things off and keep it super boring for you, could, do you, could you give just a, a, an explanation as to exactly what critical race theory is, where it originated, and its importance?
0: Yeah, sure. So thank you again for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. So very simply put, critical race theory is a framework that came out of the legal academy and. The late 1970s, early 1980s, and so essentially, it was a a series of legal scholars, including Derrick Bell, Kimley Crenshaw, and others, who were trying to think about a way to understand how the law itself is not race neutral or value neutral, right? So we oftentimes are made to understand the law as being objective, and critical race theory allows us to understand how it's not objective, how our understandings of our social world are actually based on particular racial and ethnic understanding. And another crucial thing that is important to keep in mind as it relates to critical race theory is that it allows us to understand, you know, this moment at the time following the civil rights movement, following the various sort of legal gains that, you know, are obviously important from the civil rights movement from that era, why are we still seeing persistent racial and ethnic inequality? And Critical race theory allows us to understand how we can still understand the persistence of this racial inequality in an era when things such as housing discrimination are ostensibly illegal. And the final thing I'll say quickly is that the other other important thing about critical race theory, which is why social scientists like myself often teach it, is that it provides a way of understanding how race itself or racial categories are not fixed or static or biological entities, but rather are the results of various social processes. So we oftentimes think that we can look at someone, you know, viscerally and understand or know what their racial identity is, but in fact, critical race theory allows us to understand how this is, in and of itself, is a result of various social processes. It's not sort of a naturally occurring phenomena, and so that's one reason why, you know, social scientists, you know, people outside of the legal academy, um, continue to use and teach critical race theory.
1: Are there examples of these processes playing out in earlier history that folks can latch on to as an example?
0: Yeah, sure. So I teach, or I have been teaching undergraduate courses on race and racism for a number of years now. And one of the examples I use in these courses to kind of help students understand how racial, and race and racial categories are dynamic rather than static is understanding, you know, for example, the conditions of Irish immigrants in the United States over 100 years ago. So we now understand... Irish Americans as white, but that really wasn't the dominant understanding hundreds of years ago when they or over hundred years ago when they first came to the United States. They were actually stereotyped and stigmatized very similar to stereotypes that were used uh, or still used for African Americans, right? So the construction of white American as a race is, again, not something that's static, but has come to incorporate different groups such as Irish immigrants, as Italian immigrants, such as Jewish immigrants over time and to, to sort of the present understanding of race that we have now. And so another way of thinking about this is to think about, you know, our changing demographic realities, and how and then to sort of, you know, wonder or muse as to how our understandings of race might change 100 years from now, because they've, they've changed, they were different a 100 years prior. So this is another way of understanding that this sort of construction or what we see as sort of static racial ethnic categories, are actually the result of various historical processes.
1: I'm glad you brought up the the irish example there's there's a great article out there and i can't remember who wrote it but it was how the irish became white
0: right yeah and and it yeah. talks
1: about that whole process and so so just to be clear w- what you're saying here is the concept of race and the concept of these like racial structures in society in many ways is a moving target
0: yeah I mean, we don't often think about it that way because we think we sort of see race the same way we did like a week ago but actually these are long standing processes that are constantly dynamic and constantly changing
1: okay and so do you know like, Why is this such a controversial topic or why is this a subject that really gets people riled up?
0: Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, I think it's like one of these things that as an academic, I, I want to separate what critical race theory is, the framework from the debate around it, because I think the debate actually isn't about critical race theory, it's about the sort of misinterpretations of what critical race theory is, right? So this is not like a scholarly debate such as, you know, what I and many other academics spend our lives doing. Um, so in that sense, I think the reason why critical race theory has become so controversial is because it it's... States that perhaps the sort of ideals of the United States that we are often learn in the K-12 through system are not the full story of American history or not the full story of U.S. society. And so I think in any society, in any context, that challenges a dominant narrative or a dominant ideal is seen by many to be threatening. And I think in the context of the United States, the narrative that we often tell ourselves beyond the narratives of sort of being founded on ideals of democracy and equality and these sorts of things, it's also this narrative that racism was part of the U.S.'s past and not present society. So I think any sort of evocation that racism is still relevant today is seen as threatening to people who, again, are so wedded to a dominant narrative in which it is not.
1: Yeah, the... Description or the term I like to use is kind of what I was taught in school, which is what I call kind of white people, black history. Mm-hmm. Where it was like, <laughs> Abe Lincoln, you know, oh, that's great. <laughs> like, I might steal that. Like from Abe, you. that's great. It, yeah. it, it, please yeah. do. Please do. No credit needed. But it's, you know, Abe Lincoln freed the <laughs> slaves and that was bad. And then MLK marched on Washington and then Barack Obama's president. And we're cool. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: I mean, I wasn't taught the Barack Obama part, but, you know, I'm a little, I'm dating myself now. But, but yeah, and you know, it's kind of jumping back to something you said earlier too. You know, I think where people take the greatest issue is this idea of interpreting that as saying that America is a racist society, or Americans in and of themselves are active and and conscious um, supporters of racism. And I think if I'm hearing you correctly, what what you're saying is that even though society may have evolved to a certain ethos, there's still that kind of legal wiring underneath that isn't ripped out, and that still remains, and that still runs as it normally would, that right now disadvantages people of color. Is that, am I hearing that correctly, or am I?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so. One of the things I explain to my students often is, I understand the distinction between sort of institutions and structures and ideologies, or sort of beliefs that we have. So, you know, one maybe obvious example, but I'll share it anyway, is, You know, we had the institution of slavery for, you know, hundreds of years. And so when that ends, the ideology that justified it doesn't go away just because slavery itself is over, right? It just moves on to something else. And so that's sort of how to think how you can think about sort of our present society, that even if the sort of structures or institutions or laws have changed over the years, it doesn't necessarily mean that, or, you know, it doesn't mean, sort of empirically speaking, that the ideologies that undergirded the previous structures go away, that people don't still, for example, have an ideal of Black inferiority just because we've had a Black president for two terms, for example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I got it. Maybe I mixed it up then. Maybe it's actually the other way around. It sounds like the legal wiring might change, but the societal and cultural wiring might take a little longer. Is that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that sociologists uh, in particular are always trying to think through. Like, you know, do you change structures or do you change ideologies or hearts and minds? If you can think about that in terms of race, but you could also think about that in terms of gender and how gender norms have changed or norms about sexuality, right? Like, do you change the law? that's one thing, but then do you actually, how do you change people's actual internal beliefs? I mean, that's the sort of intersection that sociologists think about. And that's also relevant when we think about um, race and racism.
1: Yeah. I think the other thing I'd throw out there, and I'd I'd love your take on this, because this came up in an episode uh, in an earlier episode back in July, but you know, I was raised uh, with the, under the idea that, that racism is morally wrong and, and, and raised under the idea that it was a very, very bad thing. Now, The second part of that, though, is there's cultural messaging that flows under that. And so what you consume in media, that's probably case in point. You know, growing up in Boston, I grew up in, I mean, Boston is a fair, at least at the time when I was growing up, was a fairly segregated city in terms of who lived where. And I like to say, you know, where I grew up, if you weren't Irish or Italian, you were Greek. Like, that was it. I did not know there were non-Greek, non-Catholics until I went to school in Chicago. So that's like, that's what we're talking about. And so I, I think that there's there's a lot of maybe let's call it subliminal or subconscious messaging that can seep into people's minds and And I think that that the big battle, a lot of people, you know, I'll just speak again, my age have to fight is the idea that, you know, yeah, you were brought up with this moral principle, but there's also a lot of other messaging coming your way that's reinforcing this ideal that you were brought up to be morally opposed to. if that does that make sense or?
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's part of why it's sometimes really hard to have these kinds of discussions, because I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people are raised to to learn that you know racism is morally wrong. So if you say anything that suggests that they might be complicit in any sort of racial inequality, it's seen as a personal attack or personal threat. And that's what I think gets in the way of having these more generative conversations. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And part of the reason I bring that up too, just to maybe at, at the risk of talking about myself a little too long, but I bring it up. So if there are other folks out there listening to this, and there are other folks who might feel a little, you know, start to get a little defensive as we wade into these waters, just keep in mind, like just keep in mind, it's a process. And I, I, I do think everybody needs to take stock in themselves and, and kind of understand how that, that could, they could do better. And I really like to make sure people understand nobody starts off on the right foot in this country, at least not in my estimation. So Jump into something a little, you know, maybe a little more concrete. We've started to find there's critical race theory and then there's what everybody thinks it is. Is critical race theory actually being taught in public schools? Because I've done a little research and I the answer seems to be no.
0: Yeah, no, it's not. And the funny thing is, I mean, it's not really funny, haha, but like the funny thing is, it's like, I mean, it really, because it came from a legal academy, it's not even taught in a lot of, you know, college curricula, right? So like, it's a, it's a relatively niche Theory that's act, in the sense of it actually being taught, but again, like how people are misinterpreting it, it's being sort of misinterpreted to being like anything that's about race and racism, and that's seen as critical race theory, and that's part of the hysteria that we're that we're witnessing presently. But no, I mean, there's no curricula um, in the K through 12 system, and you know, I would argue even many graduate programs that involves critical race theory.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's clear. And and two, I'll put this in the show notes as well. Everything I could tell from all the polls I've heard. 90 to 96% of teachers polled have said critical race theory is not being taught. And I'm not even sure if that remaining 10 to 5% are using the same definition of critical race theory that you are. I would say I doubt it. It sounds very university level. Doesn't sound like there's going to be a picture book dedicated to it. So
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, I want to get into some of the the critiques around critical race theory And I'm going to start with, I guess, what I view as the most extreme and then work our way towards what I might can what I'm going to call a kind of the mainstream critique of critical race theory or the one that might be most popularly accepted. The first one and one that I've seen in a lot of different YouTube videos and memes and so on is the idea that it is somehow rooted in Marxist ideology. Do you have any idea where that came from?
0: I don't have any idea where that came from. The only thing I could say is that I think Marx is I mean, it sort of relates to the ways that Marxism is used as a quote unquote boogeyman for everything that's seen as non-American. So I think that's where it's coming in. But in terms of the sort of, again, like the actual theoretical frameworks, I don't see that connection at all. Yeah.
1: yeah I mean, I grew up, I was a kid in the Cold War and mm. I, I don't know, it just. It seems kind of dated. That's me editorializing, mm-hmm. but okay, good <laughs> right, right so, there's yeah. no, so, so bottom line though is if is any tie to Marxism is probably a very loose a a, a a loose interpretation of maybe some shared observations on class struggle or equality or something to that effect, would you say?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this is sort of I have to again make the distinction between sort of what scholars are saying versus how the debate is actually unfolding. But I mean, I think that there are scholars that are have brought to fore the notion of racial capitalism, which, among other things, is sort of critiquing how our sort of formulation of capitalism in the United States is very much imbued with race and racial difference. Right. But again, like even that, I don't think is is really part of the debate when people are talking about this. So,
1: yeah. And so then if we move if we move a little closer, yeah. <laughs> uh, I won't say to what. I'll yeah, just I say if we move a little <laughs> further away from, from from Marxism, and we leave the Red Scare, and then we enter <laughs> the next one, which is the which is the idea that critical race theory is racist in and of itself. And so the idea is that if you teach white children that they're guilty of supporting a racist power structure and black children, they're handicapped by it. You almost create this self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. and the idea of teaching anything, but the idea that we're all created equal is bigotry in and of itself.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a definitely a much more mainstream critique and one that I think even non-whites can share or have shared. And so, you know, essentially what I say to that is, I, I think we have to sort of keep in mind that that, you know, being taught that white American history is the history is in itself a form of violence, if you will, a form of symbolic violence, right? And so we've been doing that in the curricula for hundreds of years, like we've been sort of marginalizing African American history or, you know, Mexican American history or indigenous American history for hundreds of years. And so I think that, you know, we have a curricula that says that maybe other people were important besides these great white men that we federate. It's seen as threatening or um, limiting what co- children can do, but really it's actually... Only a different side of what we've been doing to non white children in our education system for hundreds of years, right? The other thing I would say is that I think the important thing to keep in mind also is the distinction between us as individuals and larger societal structures, which is, of course, something that sociologists think a lot about. Yeah, so I get the point that, like, you know, white children don't want to be told that they're racist or they're whatever, but at the same time, the point is not to say that you as an individual white kid or child or white adult is racist, but rather, That, you know, the construction of a white American race that you've been put into has comes with these particular advantages or benefits that have nothing to do with you as an individual. So I really, you know, in my own classes, try to get students to understand the distinction between their own individual identity, which is racial, but also, you know, relates to gender and sexuality and these other things with the sort of broader societal frameworks under which we all
1: operate so the last one that comes out and this is really this is really where i think the bulk of the legislation lies and this this kind of i think builds off what you just said you know the idea that we should be teaching the ideals of america mm-hmm. so we sh- we we should be teaching the ideas in the declaration of independence mm-hmm. and in the constitution and in the ideals that we share that everyone's created equal mm-hmm. and that everyone's entitled to equal protection under the law and that that should really be the focus. Mm-hmm. And again, when I look at the when I look at the, the changes to law that I'm seeing written, and the changes to rules and state boards of education, that's where the bulk. That's where that's where it really lies. What are the proponents of those rules missing?
0: That's a really good question. I mean, I think the the important thing to do, though, is to remember to keep these things in a particular context and understand the context under which these sort of founding fathers had these ideals, right? And so, you know, I think, and and related to that, and I don't think this is particularly negative, but I understand that it's interpreted this way, is that we have to understand that people are complex. So even when we have these sort of, you know, the declaration. Declaration of Independence, we had to understand the context under which that was written, under which those ideals came from, and not just talk about one part of the sort of ideals of equality while missing that people were having these discussions in the midst of subjugation of an entire race of people and the forced displacement and eventual genocide of indigenous americans right like we can't separate those two things out i don't i don't mean that in necessarily negative sense i mean that that provides the full context under which our society was formed was developed we can't just talk about one and not talk about the other
1: 40 percent, folks That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation and this podcast grows by word of mouth number two if you want to take action in your state visit rankthevote.us it's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states and while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country rank choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters not just the parties 2020 is going to be a decade of change and i hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better and now back to the episode I didn't really go into detail, and I felt I should on this, which is we talk about these these structures that exist and these structures that have outlasted the civil rights era. And what are some of these structures? Like, what are some of the things that are preserving racism in American society?
0: Yeah. So one way to think about this is to think about the sort of legacy of former policies. So one way this comes up is. understand for example the black white wealth gap right which has only gotten worse in, in recent years not narrowed and part of the reason why it's gotten worse is because the sort of advantages that white americans were able to access because they're socially categorized as white even if they no longer exist in sort of in a legal sense the legacies of them still do. So, you know, you still have a gross disparity between white home ownership and black home ownership, both in terms of the percentages of black Americans versus white Americans who own homes and in terms of the value of their homes that they own. And so if you think about, you know, why home ownership is so important in our society, one of the ways it's important is a sort of is as a source of wealth, right? It also is a source of something that you're passing on to future generations. So if you're, if you're a white family who's owned a home for several generations, you have that wealth to pass on, and you're more likely to have that wealth to pass on than, you know, a similarly positioned African-American household. So these are the kinds of things that we understand today, or that we see today as sort of legacies of earlier policies. Another way of understanding this is thinking about uh, residential segregation or housing segregation, right? And so this idea that, again, like, and not not too long ago, which is also something I think it's important to keep in mind. This sort of history of, of redlining um, is actually a really recent history. Uh, we sort of imagine this is five million years ago, but it, it but it wasn't. But anyway, thinking about this idea that you know you couldn't as an African American buy a home wherever. So we can think about like Levittown as, as an example of that being like a really great opportunity, except for is <laughs> that not one given to African American GIs, right? And so thinking about, okay, so that no longer, that structure no longer exists in the same way. But again, like the legacies of that structure is, I guess, in terms of thinking about the communities, the kinds of neighborhoods that African Americans, even middle class African Americans, were more likely to move into or more likely to buy homes in. Again, those are those are neighborhoods and communities that were that are still more devalued than predominantly white communities. So these are things that like, and then of course, you know, where we live affects the sort of uh, quality of public education, it affects the amenities in our neighborhoods. And it has all these sort of collateral consequences that are very much present in how we need to understand racial equality today. So that's just like one example that I don't want to go too,
1: too far. Beyond. Yeah, it's super helpful too. Cause I think like the one thing I, I'm i thinking as you're, as you're talking about this too, and, and the useful part of it is then it tells us that, if we really want a more just society, if we really want to write some of the inequities of the past, we need it needs to be we need to do a little more than just change the law. And again, getting to your point, you know, right now, the quality of your education is very much determined by your zip code. And if you're if you're living in a in an undervalued community or you're living in a community with lower home values, you have a lower tax base, you can pay less. And there's a direct correlation between education funding and quality of education.
0: And I think if I could just quickly jump in, I mean, I think the I think you're absolutely right. And I think the important thing to keep in mind here is that that relationship is a direct result of our social policies, right? This is something that we as a society have created. I mean, it's not, again, like to think about back to CRT. This is partly why this is so valuable, because we have to understand what we as individuals in a society have created.
1: So there was a, an episode I did a few months ago with this professor at the University of Chicago, Julian Goh, and he wrote this really interesting paper that talks about the origins of modern policing. And again, as you're talking, I'm kind of thinking about my conversation with him. And you know what he said is he said, if you look at the the tactics that a lot of modern police departments use, they were actually built by this guy named August Vollmer. And August Vollmer borrowed those tactics from his experience in the Philippines and his experience during the Spanish-American War. And so what you have is you have police departments out there that are structured more like occupying armies than they are like peace officers. And so it's not to say that people entering law enforcement want to have an adversarial relationship with their communities, but it is to say that very often, we fall into these historical structures without even thinking, and they just execute until we take a look at them and understand what needs to be tweaked in order to improve them.
0: Right. Yeah, I know. I think that's a great example of thinking about how sort of, you know, again, even though we have individual agency, we're, so, we're often sort of in working within structures that have particular incentives or not to act a particular way. And I think the policing, the example of policing in the United States is a great example of that.
1: Yeah, and I think like if, if I'm again if I'm talking to the people who might be skeptical or I'm talking to the people who who are watching this or listening to this because they saw critical race theory and this is an issue that this really disturbs them. They just really don't like the concept. If if I'm to kind of digest it and put it in my own terms, really what 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 I think it sounds like is really using history as a framework to understanding how we can solve some of the remaining problems, remaining societal problems of inequity. And I think that that's something, again, getting back to where the consensus opinion lies, getting back to where the majority of people lie, I think the majority of people would like to see improvements in that regard.
0: Yeah, I hope you're right. I mean, as a sociologist, I always feel like as a sociologist, I tend to be pretty cynical, uh, but yes. yeah, So, but I, I will, I will, I hope you're right. Yes. I will take okay. Optimism that most people. Finger, fingers
1: it. crossed. Yeah. Fingers, fingers crossed. crossed.
0: I mean, yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think you know. But in all seriousness, I think the I think the key is, but uh, one of the things again I try to do in my in my in my courses with students is again to not see racism or structural racism as something of the past, but rather something that is so dynamic that it, it evolves to persist to existing structures, which is you know kind of what where we are today.
1: Okay. Well, let's give you a chance to be cynical then, because I feel like I, I robbed you <laughs> with, my, with my Pollyanna-ish uh, interpretation of this. So one of the things I found super interesting as I was digging into your work was some of the stuff you've done on issues of racism in France. And the interesting thing was that, you know, despite the fact that the two countries have very different histories, the reaction to pointing out issues of race seems to be very similar.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's it's been really fascinating to me as someone who's dedicated a lot of my career to study issues of race and racism in France to see the debate around CRT unfold here and then also sort of the reverberations in France because in France to be kind of the sort of simplest way of saying this is, you know, it's Republican ethos means that every individual is seen as an individual in relationship to the state. So there's no kind of African-American community, or there's no sort of, there's no acknowledgement or measurement of any racial or ethnic category in France, right? And so ostensibly, They imagine themselves to be, you know, colorblind or, you know, what we used to say here in the United States, like post-racial. But I mean, one of the things that's so obvious that I've learned from my work and from the work of many scholars who study these issues in France is that it actually doesn't work. So, not measuring or not acknowledging racism doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist. Doesn't make racism go away. And so, this is part of why I think it's so interesting the present sort of controversy against CRT in the United States because ostensibly the idea is like, let's just not talk about racism in the k-12 system so kids don't understand don't learn that they're different from other people but in fact that's actually not how racism works kids totally learn that they're different from other people they learn that that, that those differences have meanings whether or not it's actually taught in the curriculum so that's that actually the intervention that's needed and france is the perfect counterpoint of that because it's been doing that for you know thousands of years
1: yeah and and it sounds to me too like the one similarity between the two is or maybe a couple similarities. You know, number one, they hear that and they say, well, this runs contrary to the ideal of the state. This right. runs contrary right. this runs contrary to who we are as a country. And so we really shouldn't talk about this. But another thing I'm I'm having a tough time with and, and the thing I'm I'm I I'm am i am trying to figure out is I, I think is the discomfort around it. Very I I, under, I understand how some people might feel very bad. When hearing that, you know, I do understand how there could be discomfort created by hearing, hey, you know what, the environment you live in has supported a certain principle and certain injustices that you, that you yourself have grown up in opposition to, or you feel you're in opposition. to. And, and I think what I, what I don't get is, is why there is such a reflexive um, jump to colorblindness, because this you know, it exists in the U S obviously it exists in Brazil as well, where, uh, you know, with a lot of their discussions around race, and it sounds like it exists mm-hmm. in France.
0: And, yes. Yes, it does. Yes.
1: You know, is that, and, and yeah. it just, it, it seems like folk, it does, is it, I mean, it seems like folks are just kind of stung by it. So they just kind of go with what they know and they're just yeah. like, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts. You mean,
0: can... you mean what they know being colorblindness or. Yeah. Like...
1: like I think colorblind is easier. I think it's easier to say, well, you know what, we're all one race—we're the human race—and let's just keep going that way. You know, what's I mean? Yeah. What are those folks missing? That's what. That's that's actually what I want to get out there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really great question. I mean, yeah, I have a lot of random thoughts about this. So one, I mean, I think a lot of what I've seen, even even before the present hysteria around CRT, and but more just before this even became a sort of common debate now. There's a lot of sort of discussion around the sort of, or there's a lot of sort of misappropriation of the Martin Luther King, I have a dream speech, right? And so, you know, it's very common for people to do this kind of thing. And I get this in teaching a lot, actually, from students, Well, they'll be like, we're supposed to be judged by the content of our color, I mean, content of our character, excuse me, not the color of our skin. So like, what are you talking about racism for, right? And that's like, I think part, people really resist them or anything outside of their own individual identity being sort of relevant, right? So like thinking about people beyond their sort of individual personality or characteristics, people find that very threatening in our society. They think that gets into sort of like longer uh, notions of sort of individual liberties and freedoms, which I think we're also seeing in this sort of present hysteria around um, the quarantine or or lack thereof. Yeah. Right and so I think there's a way that we have such a sort of power of the individual in this society that sort of anything that's, that says that people are actually sort of you know advantaged or disadvantaged relative to their race or gender or sexual orientation or religious affiliation is is like seen as ultimately threatening to people right and so I think that that's part of the sort of backdrop to what we're having with the present hysteria now Um, The other thing I would say, though, is I think there is a lot of... um, And this is sort of something I wanted to say kind of in relation to what you said earlier around thinking about sort of how we as individuals understand moments in history as part of a longer structural history versus sort of aberrations of that history. So, for example, I think it's not at all coincidental that we're seeing this current hysteria around CRT in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd over a year ago, right? And I think there's a way that people have to people understand or are motivated to understand these kind of incidents as sort of exceptions to the general rule. So the normal way that we, the regular way that we think about policing or police involvement in communities, that's all fine. But then, you know, periodically you'll have these kinds of incidents where someone will be killed for nine minutes on a videotape. Right. And so like, that's one interpretation, but I think when you then push back and say, well, actually, this is part of part and parcel of a long history of over-policing of Black Americans and the ways in which, you know, this is only one of the many, many incidents of killings of Black people by the police, then people become very threatened by that idea. And that's, I think, partly what you're seeing with hysteria. Like, you sort of confront people with actual structural patterns, with an actual history, that's where this confrontation comes in. And the last thing I'll quickly say as a sort of a response to what you just said is it's really interesting, I think, also to think about how this is like think about the hysteria of CRT, particularly as it plays out that it is playing out in our education system. Like, again, I don't think that that's coincidental. I think we're very much want to and not just related to race, but just related to sex and gender and all kinds of things keep our kids in a protective bubble right and so i think anything that sort of imagines that there's anything bad in our world is seen again as ultimately threatening and to that point i would strongly recommend my colleague's book, Margaret Hager, uh, Haberman's uh, White Kids, which is an ethnography, she's a sociologist at Mississippi State University. And it's an ethnographic examination of white kids. I mean, she's a white sociologist herself, and she spends a lot of time with young kids and finds, you know, again, like not surprisingly, as a sociologist, but I think would be surprising for for other people. Um, that, you know, kids at a very young age have a very strong understanding of race. They, again, don't, they don't understand history. I'm not saying a four-year-old gets that, but I'm saying they understand that people are different, right? And so, again, I think, this is also where I think the hysteria around CRT is so misplaced because kids are already starting to think through these issues. They need, and they need the sort of conceptual language to do so. Like they're already sort of noticing that are difference between people, even if it's not being taught in the school. So anyway, so that's, that's a sort of aside, but also a recommendation to learn more about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually, you know, that's, that's my last question here, which is my, my goal in all this is, always to provide a bridge for folks to better understand a subject. And I think I came in with my my certain preconceived notion about CRT, my general preconceived notion, I'll confess now after we've gone through this conversation, is that it wasn't being taught in public schools and what people were debating weren't CRT. But, but the second part of that, too, is now that we know this, right, if I am still skeptical, so if I'm still thinking, you know what, this is just too much Let's just raise our kids right, teach them about equality, everything will be fine. What are some resources you might recommend that might change my mind?
0: Yeah. So again, I I think White Kids is a really great book. There, you know, the other book I would recommend that I I think it recently came out with an updated edition is Beverly Daniel Tatum's Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Um, And she's a psychologist, I mean, she's a university president, but she's also a trained psychologist, and it basically is examining partly what I just mentioned, the ways in which, you know, kids at a very young age across race are given cues in our society of what that racial identity means. Again, like they don't understand the broader structural framework. But this idea, I think, that often comes up in the sort of debate around CRT, is a needing to is a needing to sort of like protect our kids, or you know, it, you know, uh, the dangers of you know importing or bringing in ideas of race to kids who don't have an understanding of it. When in reality, the data shows the opposite: kids actually do pay attention to these things. Again, they don't have any sort of conceptual language around it, but they do make sense of differences in how people look and maybe. Pick up on cues from from adults like us of what those differences mean, and so I think um, you know I recommend both those books as a way to understand how to sort of deal with that fact and sort of recognize that as an empirically uh, uh, proven phenomena.
1: Yeah, Gene, yeah. thank you very much. This was super helpful to me, or I hope it was helpful to the to the people watching, the people listening, and abbianto. Uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode, and if you did, share it with one friend you think might dig it. As I mentioned over and over and over again, this podcast grows by word of mouth. I've also included some follow up resources in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just click the link that says episodes in the upper right hand corner, and you shall find. Now, a couple things I learned in my conversation with Gene. First, is that what people are debating as critical race theory and what critical race theory actually is are two totally different things. Critical race theory is a university level subject, so you quite literally have to worry as much about your kids being taught quantum physics in their K 12 schools as you do critical race theory. The second part is that people's reaction to CRT and concepts like it seem to be based in the contrast it presents to our ideals. And I don't believe it's because the people who are anxious about critical race theory are necessarily against ideas of racial equality and racial equity. But there's a natural resistance that comes up to the idea that your country and the economic systems that support you might be structured in a way that you feel is morally unjust. And the thing I'd like everyone to remember is that minimizing the role race plays in our country's history cuts off our own path to redemption. Because if the people who founded this country can both be celebrated for their contributions towards justice and recognize for the flaws that had them work against it, then that gives room for all of us to be imperfect too. And it gives room for all of us to grow into better people and for the nation to grow into a better version of itself that better represents the ideas of liberty and equality. And if we don't talk about these flaws, then we are simply the biggest losers in American history. We are the first flawed people to walk this nation, and that is not a place that any of us want to be as always music courtesy of queller ydhty's editorial advisor is the admirable admiral adam Yaffe. ydhty is produced in loving memory of the big geno jason putney until the next this is dan sally buh-bye